Book Two, Chapter Twenty Three of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Twenty Three Fire Rises. There was a change on the village where the fountain fell, and where the mender of roads went forth daily to hammer out of the stones on the highway such morsels of bread as might serve for patches to hold his poor ignorant soul and his poor reduced body together. The prison on the crag was not so dominant as of yore. There were soldiers to guard it, but not many. There were officers to guard the soldiers, but not one of them knew what his men would do beyond this, that it would probably not be what he was ordered. Far and wide lay a ruined country, yielding nothing but desolation. Every green leaf, every blade of grass and blade of grain was as shriveled and poor as the miserable people. Everything was bowed down, dejected, oppressed and broken. Habitations, fences, domesticated animals, men, women, children, and the soil that bore them, all worn out. Monseigneur, often a most worthy individual gentleman, was a national blessing, gave a chivalrous tone to things, was a polite example of luxurious and shining life, and a great deal more to equal purpose. Nevertheless, Monseigneur, as a class, had, somehow or other, brought things to this. Strange that creation, designed expressly for Monseigneur, should be so soon wrung dry and squeezed out. There must be something short-sighted in the eternal arrangements, surely. Thus it was, however, and the last drop of blood having been extracted from the flints, and the last screw of the rack having been turned so often that its purchase crumbled, and it now turned and turned with nothing to bite, Monseigneur began to run away from a phenomenon so low and unaccountable. But this was not the change on the village, and on many a village like it. For scores of years gone by, Monseigneur had squeezed it and wrung it, and had seldom graced it with his presence, except for the pleasures of the chase, now found in hunting the people, now found in hunting the beasts, for whose preservation Monseigneur made edifying spaces of barbarous and barren wilderness. No, the change consisted in the appearance of strange faces of low caste, rather than in in the disappearance of the high caste, chiselled and otherwise beautified and beautifying features of Monseigneur. For, in these times, as the mender of roads worked, solitary, in the dust, not often troubling himself to reflect that dust he was, and to dust he must return, being for the most part too much occupied in thinking how little he had for supper, and how much more he would eat if he had it. In these times, as he raised his eyes from his lonely labour, and viewed the prospect, he would see some rough figure approaching on foot, the like of which was once a rarity in those parts, but was now a frequent presence. As it advanced, the mender of roads would discern without surprise that it was a shaggy-haired man, of almost barbarian aspect, 
tall, in wooden shoes that were clumsy even to the eyes of a mender of roads, grim, rough, swart, steeped in the mud and dust of many highways, dank with the marshy moisture of many low grounds, sprinkled with the thorns and leaves and moss of many byways through woods. Such a man came upon him, like a ghost, at noon in the July weather, as he sat on his heap of stones under a bank, taking such shelter as he could get from a shower of hail. The man looked at him, looked at the village in the hollow, at the mill, and at the prison on the crag. When he had identified these objects in what benighted mind he had, he said, in a dialect that was just intelligible, "'How goes it, Jacques?' All well, Jacques. Touch, then. They joined hands, and the man sat down on the heap of stones. No dinner? Nothing but supper now, said the mender of roads with a hungry face. It is the fashion, growled the man. I meet no dinner anywhere. He took out a blackened pipe, filled it, lighted it with flint and steel, pulled at it until it was in a bright glow, then suddenly held it from him, and dropped something into it from between his finger and thumb, that blazed and went out in a puff of smoke. "'Touch, then!' It was the turn of the mender of roads to say it this time, after observing these operations. They again joined hands. "'Tonight!' said the mender of roads. "'Tonight!' said the man, putting the pipe in his mouth. "'Where?' "'Here!' He and the mender of roads sat on the heap of stones, looking silently at one another, with the hail driving in between them like a pygmy charge of bayonets, until the sky began to clear over the village. "'Show me,' said the traveller then, moving to the brow of the hill. "'See,' returned the mender of roads, with extended finger, "'you go down here, and straight through the street, and past the fountain—' "'To the devil with all that!' interrupted the other, rolling his eye over the landscape. "'I go through no streets, and pass no fountains. "'Well?' "'Well, about two leagues beyond the summit of that hill above the village.' Good. When do you cease to work? At sunset. Will you wake me before departing? I have walked two nights without resting. Let me finish my pipe, and I shall sleep like a child. Will you wake me? Surely. The wayfarer smoked his pipe out, put it in his breast, slipped off his great wooden shoes, and lay down on his back on the heap of stones. He was fast asleep directly. As the road-mend applied his dusty labour, and the hail-clouds, rolling away, revealed bright bars and streaks of sky which were responded to by silver gleams upon the landscape, the little man, who wore a red cap now in place of his blue one, seemed fascinated by the figure on the heap of stones. His eyes were so often turned towards it that he used his tools mechanically, and one would have said to very poor account the bronze face the shaggy black hair and beard the coarse woollen red cap the rough medley dress of homespun stuff and hairy skins of beasts the powerful frame attenuated by spare living and the sullen and desperate compression of the lips in sleep 
inspired the mender of roads with awe. The traveller had travelled far, and his feet were footsore, and his ankles chafed and bleeding. His great shoes, stuffed with leaves and grass, had been heavy to drag over the many long leagues, and his clothes were chafed into holes, as he himself was into sores. Stooping down beside him, the road-mender tried to get a peep at secret weapons in his breast or where not, but in vain, for he slept with his arms crossed upon him, and set as resolutely as his lips. Fortified towns with their stockades, guard-houses, gates, trenches, and drawbridges seemed to the mender of roads to be so much air as against this figure and when he lifted his eyes from it to the horizon and looked around he saw in his small fancy similar figures stopped by no obstacle tending to centres all over france the man slept on indifferent to showers of hail and intervals of brightness to sunshine on his face and shadow to the paltering lumps of dull ice on his body and the diamonds into which the sun changed them until the sun was low in the west and the sky was glowing then the mender of roads having got his tools together and all things ready to go down into the village roused him good said the sleeper rising on his elbow two leagues beyond the summit of the hill about about good the mender of roads went home, with the dust going on before him according to the set of the wind, and was soon at the fountain, squeezing himself in among the lean kine brought there to drink, and appearing even to whisper to them in his whispering to all the village. When the village had taken its poor supper, it did not creep to bed as it usually did, but came out of doors again, and remained there. A curious contagion of whispering was upon it, and also, when it gathered together at the fountain in the dark, another curious contagion of looking expectantly at the sky, in one direction only. Monsieur Gabel, chief functionary of the place, became uneasy, went out on his housetop alone, and looked in that direction too, glanced down from behind his chimneys at the darkening faces by the fountain below, and sent word to the sacristan, who kept the keys of the church, that there might be need to ring the tocsin by and by. The night deepened. The trees environing the old chateau, keeping its solitary state apart, moved in a rising wind, as though they threatened the pile of building massive and dark in the gloom. Up the two terrace flights of steps the rain ran wildly, and beat at the great door, like a swift messenger rousing those within. Uneasy rushes of wind went through the hall, among the old spears and knives, and passed lamenting up the stairs, and shook the curtains of the bed where the last marquis had slept east west north and south through the woods four heavy treading unkempt figures crushed the high grass and cracked the branches striding on cautiously to come together in the courtyard four lights broke out there and moved away in different directions and all was black again but 
Not for long. Presently the chateau began to make itself strangely visible by some light of its own, as though it were growing luminous. Then a flickering streak played behind the architecture of the front, picking out transparent places, and showing where balustrades, arches, and windows were. Then it soared higher, and grew broader, and brighter. Soon from a score of the great windows flames burst forth, and the stone faces awakened, stared out of fire. A faint murmur arose about the house from the few people who were left there, and there was a saddling of a horse and riding away. There was spurring and splashing through the darkness, and bridle was drawn in the space by the village fountain, and the horse in a foam stood at Monsieur Gabel's door. Help, Gabel! Help, everyone! The tocsin rang impatiently, but other help, if there were any, there was none. The mender of roads and two hundred and fifty particular friends stood with folded arms at the fountain, looking at the pillar of fire in the sky. It must be forty feet high, said they grimly, and never moved. The rider from the chateau and the horse in a foam clattered away through the village and galloped up the stony steep to the prison on the crag. At the gate a group of officers were looking at the fire, removed from them a group of soldiers. Help, gentlemen, officers! The chateau is on fire! Valuable objects may be saved from the flames by timely aid! Help! Help! The officers looked towards the soldiers who looked at the fire, gave no orders, and answered with shrugs and biting of lips, It must burn. As the rider rattled down the hill again and through the street, the village was illuminating. The mender of roads and the two hundred and fifty particular friends, inspired as one man and woman by the idea of lighting up, had darted into their houses and were putting candles in every dull little pane of glass. The general scarcity of everything occasioned candles to be borrowed in a rather peremptory manner of Monsieur Gabin and in a moment of reluctance and hesitation on that functionary's part, the mender of roads, once so submissive to authority, had remarked that carriages were good to make bonfires with, and that post-horses would roast. The chateau was left to itself to flame and burn. In the roaring and raging of the conflagration, a red-hot wind, driving straight from the infernal regions, seemed to be blowing the edifice away. With the rising and falling of the blaze, the stone faces showed as if they were in torment. When great masses of stone and timber fell, the face with the two dints in the nose became obscured. Anon struggled out of the smoke again, as if it were the face of the cruel Marquis, burning at the stake and contending with the fire. The chateau burned. The nearest trees, laid hold of by the fire, scorched and shriveled. Trees at a distance, fired by the four fierce figures, begirt the blazing edifice with a new forest of smoke. 
molten lead and iron boiled in the marble basin of the fountain the water ran dry the extinguisher tops of the towers vanished like ice before the heat and trickled down into four rugged wells of flame great rents and splits branched out in the solid walls like crystallization stupefied birds wheeled about and dropped into the furnace four fierce figures trudged away east west north and south along the night-enshrouded roads guided by the beacon they had lighted towards their next destination the illuminated village had seized hold of the toxin and abolishing the lawful ringer rang for joy not only that but the village light-headed with famine fire and bell-ringing and bethinking itself that monsieur gabelle had to do with the collection of rent and taxes though it was but a small instalment of taxes and no rent at all that the bell had got in those latter days became impatient for an interview with him and surrounding his house summoned him to come forth for personal conference whereupon m gabelle did heavily bar his door and retire to hold counsel with himself the result of that conference was that gabelle again withdrew himself to his housetop behind his stack of chimneys this time resolved if his door was broken in he was a small southern man of retaliative temperament to pitch himself head foremost over the parapet and crush a man or two below Probably M. Gabelle passed a long night up there, with the distant chateau for fire and candle, and the beating at his door, combined with the joy-ringing for music. Not to mention his having an ill-omened lamp slung across the road before his posting-house gate, which the village showed a lively inclination to displace in his favour a trying suspense to be passing a whole summer night on the brink of the black ocean ready to take that plunge into it upon which m gabelle had resolved but the friendly dawn appearing at last and the rush candles of the village guttering out the people happily dispersed and m gabelle came down bringing his life with him for that while within a hundred miles and in the light of other fires there were other functionaries less fortunate that night and other nights whom the rising sun found hanging across once peaceful streets where they had been born and bred also there were other villagers and townspeople less fortunate than the mender of roads and his fellows upon whom the functionaries and soldiery turned with success and whom they strung up in their turn but the fierce figures were steadily wending east west north and south be that as it would and whosoever hung fire burned the altitude of the gallows that would turn to water and quench it, no functionary by any stretch of mathematics was able to calculate successfully. End of Book 2, Chapter 23 Recording by Paul Adams www.yornguy.com
Book Two, Chapter Twenty Four of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Twenty Four Drawn to the Lodestone Rock. In such risings of fire and risings of sea, the firm earth shaken by the rushes of an angry ocean which had now no ebb but was always on the flow higher and higher to the terror and wonder of the beholders on the shore, three years of tempest were consumed, three more birthdays of little Lucy had been woven by the golden thread into the peaceful tissue of the life of her home. Many a night and many a day had its inmates listened to the echoes in the corner, with hearts that failed them when they heard the thronging feet, for the footsteps had become to their minds as the footsteps of a people, tumultuous under a red flag, and with their country declared in danger, changed into wild beasts by terrible enchantment long persisted in. Monseigneur, as a class, had dissociated himself from the phenomenon of his not being appreciated, of his being so little wanted in France as to incur considerable danger of receiving his dismissal from it, and this life together. Like the fabled rustic who raised the devil with infinite pains, and was so terrified at the sight of him that he could ask the enemy no question, but immediately fled, so Monseigneur, after boldly reading the Lord's Prayer backwards for a great number of years, and performing many other potent spells for compelling the evil one, no sooner beheld him in his terrors than he took to his noble heels. The shining bull's-eye of the court was gone, or it would have been the mark for a hurricane of national bullets. It had never been a good eye to see with, had long had the moat in it of Lucifer's pride, Sardanapalus's luxury, and a mole's blindness, but it had dropped out and was gone. The court, from that exclusive inner circle to its outermost rotten ring of intrigue, corruption, and dissimulation, was all gone together. Royalty was gone, had been besieged in its palace, and suspended when the last tidings came over. The August of the year 1792 was come, and Monseigneur was by this time scattered far and wide. As was natural, the headquarters and great gathering-place of Monseigneur in London was Telson's Bank. Spirits are supposed to haunt the places where their bodies most resorted, and Monseigneur without a guinea haunted the spot where his guineas used to be. Moreover, it was the spot to which such French intelligence as was most to be relied upon came quickest. Again, Telson's was a munificent house, and extended great liberality to old customers who had fallen from their high estate. Again, those nobles who had seen the coming storm in time, and anticipating plunder or confiscation, had made provident remittances to Telson's, were always to be heard of there by their needy brethren. To which it must be added that every newcomer from France reported himself and his tidings at Telson's, almost as a matter of course. 
For such variety of reasons, Tellson's was, at that time, as to French intelligence, a kind of high exchange, and this was so well known to the public, and the inquiries made there were in consequence so numerous, that Tellson sometimes wrote the latest news out in a line or so, and posted it in the bank windows, for all who ran through Temple Bar to read. On a steaming, misty afternoon, Mr. Lorry sat at his desk, and Charles Darnay stood leaning on it, talking with him in a low voice. The penitential den once set apart for interviews with the house was now the news exchange, and was filled to overflowing. It was within half an hour or so of the time of closing. "'But although you are the youngest man that ever lived,' said Charles Darnay, rather hesitating, "'I must still suggest to you—' "'I understand that I am too old,' said Mr. Lorry. "'Unsettled weather, a long journey, uncertain means of travelling a disorganized country, a city that may not even be safe for you.' "'My dear Charles,' said Mr. Lorry, with cheerful confidence, "'you touch some of the reasons for my going, not for staying away. "'It is safe enough for me. "'Nobody will care to interfere with an old fellow of hard upon four score "'when there are so many people there much better worth interfering with. "'As to its being a disorganized city, "'if it were not a disorganized city, "'there would be no occasion to send somebody from our house here to our house there, who knows the city and the business of old, and is in Telson's confidence. As to the uncertain travelling, the long journey, and the winter weather, if I were not prepared to submit myself to a few inconveniences for the sake of Telson's, after all these years, who ought to be? "'I wish I were going myself,' said Charles Darnay, somewhat restlessly, and like one thinking aloud. "'Indeed, you are a pretty fellow to object and advise,' exclaimed Mr. Lorry. "'You wish you were going yourself, and you a Frenchman born? You are a wise counsellor.' "'My dear Mr. Lorry, it is because I am a Frenchman born that the thought, which I did not mean to utter here, however, has passed through my mind often. One cannot help thinking, having had some sympathy for the miserable people, and having abandoned something to them—he spoke here in his former thoughtful manner—that one might be listened to, and might have the power to persuade to some restraint.' only last night after you had left us when i was talking to lucy when you were talking to lucy mr lorry repeated yes i wonder you are not ashamed to mention the name of lucy wishing you were going to france at this time of day however i am not going said charles darnay with a smile it is more to the purpose that you say you are and i am in plain reality the truth is my dear charles mr lorry glanced at the distant house and lowered his voice you can have no conception of the difficulty with which our business is transacted and of the peril in which our books and papers over yonder are involved the lord above knows what the compromising consequences would be to numbers of people if some of our documents were seized or destroyed and they might be at any time you know for who can say that paris has not set a fire to-day or sacked to-morrow 
Now, a judicious selection from these with the least possible delay, and the burying of them, or otherwise getting of them out of harm's way, is within the power, without loss of precious time, of scarcely any one but myself, if any one. And shall I hang back when Telson's knows this and says this, Telson's whose bread I have eaten these sixty years, because I am a little stiff about the joints? Why, I am a boy, sir, to half a dozen old codgers here. How I admire the gallantry of your youthful spirit, Mr. Lorry. Tut, nonsense, sir. And, my dear child, said Mr. Lorry, glancing at the house again, you are to remember that getting things out of Paris at this present time, no matter what things, is next to an impossibility. Papers and precious matters were this very day brought to us here. I speak in strict confidence. It is not business-like to whisper it, even to you. By the strangest bearers you can imagine— every one of whom had his head hanging on by a single hair as he passed the barriers at another time our parcels would come and go as easily as in business like old england but now everything is stopped and do you really go to-night i really go to-night for the case has become too pressing to admit of delay and do you take no one with you all sorts of people have been proposed to me but i will have nothing to say to any of them i intend to take jerry jerry has been my bodyguard on sunday nights for a long time past and i am used to him nobody will suspect jerry of being anything but an english bulldog or of having any design in his head but to fly at anybody who touches his master i must say again that i heartily admire your gallantry and youthfulness i must say again nonsense nonsense when i have executed this little commission i shall perhaps accept telson's proposal to retire and live at my ease time enough then to think about growing old this dialogue had taken place at mr lorry's usual desk with monseigneur swarming within a yard or two of it boastful of what he would do to avenge himself on the rascal people before long it was too much the way of monseigneur under his reverses as a refugee and it was much too much the way of native british orthodoxy to talk of this terrible revolution as if it were the only harvest ever known under the skies that had not been sown as if nothing had ever been done or omitted to be done that had led to it as if observers of the wretched millions in france and of the misused and perverted resources that should have made them prosperous had not seen it inevitably coming years before and had not in plain words recorded what they saw such vapouring combined with the extravagant plots of monseigneur for the restoration of a state of things that had utterly exhausted itself and worn out heaven and earth as well as itself was hard to be endured without some remonstrance by any sane man who knew the truth and it was such vapouring all about his ears like a troublesome confusion of blood in his own head added to a latent uneasiness in his mind which had already made charles darnay restless and which still kept him so 
Among the talkers was Striver, of the king's bench bar, far on his way to state promotion, and therefore loud on the theme, broaching to Monseigneur his devices for blowing the people up, and exterminating them from the face of the earth, and doing without them, and for accomplishing many similar objects akin in their nature to the abolition of eagles by sprinkling salt on the tails of the race. Him Darnay heard with a particular feeling of objection, and Darnay stood divided between going away that he might hear no more, and remaining to interpose his word, when the thing that was to be went on to shape itself out. The house approached Mr. Lorry, and laying a soiled and unopened letter before him, asked if he had yet discovered any traces of the person to whom it was addressed. The house laid the letter down so close to Darnay that he saw the direction, the more quickly because it was his own right name. The address, turned into English, ran very pressing to monsieur heretofore the marquis saint evremond of france confided to the cares of messrs tellson and company bankers london england on the marriage morning dr manette had made it his one urgent and expressed request to charles darnay that the secret of this name should be unless he the doctor dissolved the obligation kept inviolate between them Nobody else knew it to be his name. His own wife had no suspicion of the fact. Mr. Lorry could have none. No, said Mr. Lorry in reply to the house. I have referred it, I think, to everybody now here, and no one can tell me where this gentleman is to be found. The hands of the clock verging upon the hour of closing the bank, there was a general set of the current of talkers past Mr. Lorry's desk. He held the letter out inquiringly, and Monseigneur looked at it in the person of this plotting and indignant refugee, and Monseigneur looked at it in the person of that plotting and indignant refugee, and this, that, and the other all had something disparaging to say, in French or in English, concerning the Marquis, who was not to be found. Nephew, I believe, but in any case degenerate successor of the polished Marquis who was murdered, said one. Happy to say I never knew him. A craven who abandoned his post, said another. This Monseigneur had been got out of Paris, legs uppermost and half suffocated in a load of hay some years ago. "'Infected with the new doctrines,' said a third, eyeing the direction through his glass in passing, "'set himself in opposition to the last Marquis, abandoned the estates when he inherited them, and left them to the ruffian herd. They will recompense him now, I hope, as he deserves.' "'Hey!' cried the blatant striver. "'Did he, though? Is that the sort of fellow? Let us look at his infamous name. Damn the fellow!' Darnay, unable to restrain himself any longer, touched Mr. Striver on the shoulder, and said, "'I know the fellow.' "'Do you by Jupiter?' said Striver. "'I am sorry for it.' "'Why?' "'Why, Mr. Darnay? Do you hear what he said? Don't ask why in these times.' "'But I do ask why.' 
"'Then I tell you again, Mr. Darnay, I am sorry for it. I am sorry to hear you putting any such extraordinary questions. Here is a fellow who, infected by the most pestilent and blasphemous code of devilry that ever was known, abandoned his property to the vilest scum of the earth that ever did murder by wholesale, and you ask me why I am sorry that a man who instructs youth knows him? Well, but I'll answer you. I am sorry because I believe there is contamination in such a scoundrel. That's why." Mindful of the secret, Darnay with great difficulty checked himself, and said, "'You may not understand the gentleman.' "'I understand how to put you in a corner, Mr. Darnay,' said Bully Striver, "'and I'll do it. If this fellow is a gentleman, I don't understand him.' You may tell him so with my compliments. You may also tell him from me that after abandoning his worldly goods and position to this butcherly mob, I wonder he is not at the head of them. But no, gentlemen, said Striver, looking all round and snapping his fingers, I know something of human nature, and I tell you that you'll never find a fellow like this fellow trusting himself to the mercies of such precious protégés. No, gentlemen, he'll always show him a clean pair of heels very early in the scuffle and sneak away. With those words and a final snap of his fingers, Mr. Stryver shouldered himself into Fleet Street amidst the general approbation of his hearers. Mr. Lorry and Charles Darnay were left alone at the desk in the general departure from the bank. "'Will you take charge of the letter?' said Mr. Lorry. "'You know where to deliver it?' "'I do.' "'Will you undertake to explain that we suppose it to have been addressed here on the chance of our knowing where to forward it, and that it has been here some time?' "'I will do so. Do you start for Paris from here?' "'From here at eight. I will come back to see you off.' Very ill at ease with himself, and with Striver and most other men, Darnay made the best of his way into the quiet of the temple, opened the letter, and read it. These were its contents. Prison of the Abbe, Paris, June 21, 1792. Monsieur heretofore the Marquis. After having long been in danger of my life at the hands of the village, I have been seized with great violence and indignity, and brought a long journey on foot to Paris. On the road I have suffered a great deal, nor is that all. My house has been destroyed, razed to the ground. The crime for which I am imprisoned, Monsieur heretofore the Marquis, and for which I shall be summoned before the tribunal, and shall lose my life without your so generous help, is, they tell me, treason against the majesty of the people, in that I have acted against them for an emigrant. It is in vain I represent that I have acted for them, and not against, according to your commands. It is in vain I represent that, before the sequestration of emigrant property, I had remitted the imposts they had ceased to pay, that I had collected no rent, that I had had recourse to no process. The only response is that I have acted for an emigrant, and where is that emigrant?' 
Ah, most gracious monsieur heretofore the Marquis, where is that emigrant? I cry in my sleep, where is he? I demand of heaven, will he not come to deliver me? No answer. Ah, monsieur heretofore the Marquis, I send my desolate cry across the sea, hoping it may perhaps reach your ears through the great bank of Tilson, known at Paris." For the love of heaven, of justice, of generosity, of the honour of your noble name, I supplicate you, monsieur heretofore the Marquis, to succour and release me. My fault is that I have been true to you. Oh, monsieur heretofore the Marquis, I pray you, be you true to me. From this prison here of horror, whence I every hour tend nearer and nearer to destruction, I send you, monsieur heretofore the Marquis, the assurance of my dolorous and unhappy service, your afflicted Gabelle. The latent uneasiness in Darnay's mind was roused to vigorous life by this letter, the peril of an old servant and a good one, whose only crime was fidelity to himself and his family, stared him so reproachfully in the face that, as he walked to and fro in the temple, considering what to do, he almost hid his face from the passer-by. He knew very well that in his horror of the deed which had culminated the bad deeds and bad reputation of the old family house, in his resentful suspicions of his uncle, and in the aversion with which his conscience regarded the crumbling fabric that he was supposed to uphold, he had acted imperfectly. He knew very well that in his love for Lucy, his renunciation of his social place, though by no means new to his own mind, had been hurried and incomplete. He knew that he ought to have systematically worked it out and supervised it, and that he had meant to do it, and that it had never been done. The happiness of his own chosen English home, the necessity of being always actively employed, the swift changes and troubles of the time which had followed on one another so fast that the events of this week annihilated the immature plans of last week, and the events of the week following made all new again, he knew very well that, to the force of these circumstances, he had yielded, not without disquiet, but still without continuous and accumulating resistance. That he had watched the times for a time of action, and that they had shifted and struggled until the time had gone by, and the nobility were trooping from France by every highway and byway, and their property was in course of confiscation and destruction, and their very names were blotting out, was as well known to himself as it could be to any new authority in France that might impeach him for it. But he had oppressed no man, he had imprisoned no man, he was so far from having harshly exacted payment of his dues, that he had relinquished them of his own will, thrown himself on a world with no favour in it, won his own private place there, and earned his own bread. 
Monsieur Gabel had held the impoverished and involved estate on written instructions to spare the people, to give them what little there was to give, such fuel as the heavy creditors would let them have in the winter, and such produce as could be saved from the same grip in the summer. And no doubt he had put the fact in plea and proof for his own safety, so that it could not but appear now. This favoured the desperate resolution Charles Darnay had begun to make, that he would go to Paris. Yes, like the mariner in the old story, the winds and streams had driven him within the influence of the lodestone rock, and it was drawing him to itself, and he must go. Everything that arose before his mind drifted him on, faster and faster, more and more steadily to the terrible attraction. His latent uneasiness had been that bad aims were being worked out in his own unhappy land by bad instruments, and that he, who could not fail to know that he was better than they, was not there, trying to do something to stay bloodshed and assert the claims of mercy and humanity. With this uneasiness half-stifled and half-reproaching him, he had been brought to the pointed comparison of himself with the brave old gentleman in whom duty was so strong. Upon that comparison, injurious to himself, had instantly followed the sneers of Monseigneur, which had stung him bitterly, and those of Striver, which above all were coarse and galling for old reasons. Upon those had followed Gabel's letter, the appeal of an innocent prisoner, in danger of death, to his justice, honour, and good name. His resolution was made. He must go to Paris. Yes, the lodestone rock was drawing him, and he must sail on until he struck. He knew of no rock. He saw hardly any danger. The intention with which he had done what he had done, even though he had left it incomplete, presented it before him in an aspect that would be gratefully acknowledged in France on his presenting himself to assert it. Then that glorious vision of doing good, which is so often the sanguine mirage of so many good minds, arose before him, and he even saw himself in the illusion with some influence to guide this raging revolution that was running so fearfully wild. As he walked to and fro, with his resolution made, he considered that neither Lucy nor her father must know of it until he was gone. Lucy should be spared the pain of separation, and her father, always reluctant to turn his thoughts towards the dangerous ground of old, should come to the knowledge of the step, as a step taken, and not in the balance of suspense and doubt. How much of the incompleteness of his situation was referable to her father, through the painful anxiety to avoid reviving old associations of France in his mind, he did not discuss with himself. But that circumstance, too, had had its influence in his course. He walked to and fro with thoughts very busy, until it was time to return to Telson's and take leave of Mr. Lorry. As soon as he arrived in Paris, he would present himself to this old friend, but he must say nothing of his intention now. 
A carriage with post-horses was ready at the bank door, and Jerry was booted and equipped. "'I have delivered that letter,' said Charles Darnay to Mr. Lorry. "'I would not consent to your being charged with any written answer, but perhaps you will take a verbal one?' "'That I will, and readily,' said Mr. Lorry, "'if it is not dangerous. Not at all, though it is to a prisoner in the Abbey.' "'What is his name?' said Mr. Lorry, with his open pocket-book in his hand. "'Gabelle.' "'Gabelle. And what is the message to the unfortunate Gabelle in prison?' "'Simply that he has received the letter and will come.' "'Any time mentioned? He will start upon his journey to-morrow night.' "'Any person mentioned? No.' He helped Mr. Lorry to wrap himself in a number of coats and cloaks, and went out with him from the warm atmosphere of the old bank into the misty air of Fleet Street. "'My love to Lucy and to little Lucy,' said Mr. Lorry at parting, "'and take precious care of them till I come back.' Charles Darnay shook his head and doubtfully smiled as the carriage rolled away. That night, it was the 14th of August, he sat up late and wrote two fervent letters. One was to Lucy, explaining the strong obligation he was under to go to Paris, and showing her, at length, the reasons that he had for feeling confident that he could become involved in no personal danger there. The other was to the doctor, confiding Lucy and their dear child to his care, and dwelling on the same topics with the strongest assurances. To both he wrote that he would dispatch letters in proof of his safety immediately after his arrival. It was a hard day, that day of being among them, with the first reservation of their joint lives on his mind. It was a hard matter to preserve the innocent deceit of which they were profoundly unsuspicious. But an affectionate glance at his wife, so happy and busy, made him resolute not to tell her what impended. He had been half moved to do it, so strange it was to him, to act in anything without her quiet aid. And the day passed quickly. Early in the evening he embraced her, and her scarcely less dear namesake, pretending that he would return by and by, an imaginary engagement took him out, and he had secreted a valise of clothes ready, and so he emerged into the heavy mist of the heavy streets with a heavier heart. The unseen force was drawing him fast to itself now, and all the tides and winds were setting straight and strong towards it. He left his two letters with the trusty porter to be delivered half an hour before midnight, and no sooner took horse for Dover and began his journey. For the love of heaven, of justice, of generosity, of the honour of your noble name, was the poor prisoner's cry with which he strengthened his sinking heart, as he left all that was dear on earth behind him, and floated away for the lodestone rock. The End of the Second Book End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty-Four Recording by Paul Adams www.yawnguy.com
Book three, chapter one of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Book the third, The Track of a Storm. Chapter one, In Secret. The traveller fared slowly on his way, who fared towards Paris from England in the autumn of the year 1792. More than enough of bad roads, bad equipages, and bad horses, he would have encountered to delay him, though the fallen and unfortunate King of France had been upon his throne in all his glory. But the changed times were fraught with other obstacles than these. Every town-gate and village taxing-house had its band of citizen patriots, with their national muskets in a most explosive state of readiness, who stopped all comers and goers, cross-questioned them, inspected their papers, looked for their names in lists of their own, turned them back, or sent them on, or stopped them, and laid them in hold, as their capricious judgment or fancy deemed best for the dawning republic one and indivisible, of liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. A very few French leagues of his journey were accomplished, when Charles Darnay began to perceive that for him, along these country roads, there was no hope of return, until he should have been declared a good citizen at Paris. Whatever might befall now, he must on to his journey's end. Not a mean village closed upon him, not a common barrier dropped across the road behind him, but he knew it to be another iron door in the series that was barred between him and England. The universal watchfulness so encompassed him that if he had been taken in a net, or were being forwarded to his destination in a cage, he could not have felt his freedom more completely gone." This universal watchfulness not only stopped him on the highway twenty times in a stage, but retarded his progress twenty times in a day, by riding after him and taking him back, riding before him and stopping him by anticipation, riding with him and keeping him in charge. He had been days upon his journey in France alone, when he went to bed tired out in a little town on the high road, still a long way from Paris. Nothing but the production of the afflicted Gabelle's letter from his prison of the Abbaye would have got him on so far. His difficulty at the guard-house in this small place had been such that he felt his journey to have come to a crisis, and he was, therefore, as little surprised as a man could be to find himself awakened at the small inn to which he had been remitted until morning in the middle of the night awakened by a timid local functionary and three armed patriots in rough red caps and with pipes in their mouths who sat down on the bed emigrant said the functionary i am going to send you on to paris under an escort citizen i desire nothing more than to get to paris though i could dispense with the escort silence growled a red cap striking at the coverlet with the butt end of his musket peace aristocrat it is as the good patriot says observed the timid functionary you are an aristocrat and must have an escort and must pay for it i have no choice said charles darnay 
choice. Listen to him, cried the same scowling red cap, as if it was not a favour to be protected from the lamp-iron. It is always as the good patriot says, observed the functionary. Rise and dress yourself, emigrant. Darnay complied and was taken back to the guard-house, where other patriots in rough red caps were smoking, drinking, and sleeping by a watch-fire. Here he paid a heavy price for his escort, and hence he started with it on the wet, wet roads at three o'clock in the morning. The escort were two mounted patriots, in red caps and tricoloured cockades, armed with national muskets and sabres, who rode one on either side of him. The escorted governed his own horse, but a loose line was attached to his bridle, the end of which one of the patriots kept girded round his wrist. In this state they set forth, with the sharp rain driving in their faces, clattering at a heavy dragoon trot over the uneven town pavement and out upon the mire-deep roads. In this state they traversed without change, except of horses and pace, all the mire-deep leagues that lay between them and the capital. They travelled in the night, halting an hour or two after daybreak, and lying by until the twilight fell. The escort were so wretchedly clothed that they twisted straw round their bare legs, and thatched their ragged shoulders to keep the wet off. Apart from the personal discomfort of being so attended, and apart from such considerations of present danger as arose from one of the patriots being chronically drunk and carrying his musket very recklessly, Charles Darnay did not allow the restraint that was laid upon him to awaken any serious fears in his breast, for— he reasoned with himself that it could have no reference to the merits of an individual case that was not yet stated, and of representations confirmable by the prisoner in the abbey that were not yet made. But when they came to the town of Beauvais, which they did at eventide, when the streets were filled with people, he could not conceal from himself that the aspect of affairs was very alarming. An ominous crowd gathered to see him dismount of the posting-yard, and many voices called out loudly, "'Down with the emigrant!' He stopped in the act of swinging himself out of his saddle, and resuming it as his safest place, said, "'Emigrant, my friends, do you not see me here in France of my own will?' "'You are a cursed emigrant!' cried a farrier, making at him in a furious manner through the press, hammer in hand, and you are a cursed aristocrat. The postmaster interposed himself between this man and the rider's bridle, at which he was evidently making, and soothingly said, let him be, let him be, he'll be judged at Paris. Judged, repeated the farrier, swinging his hammer, aye, and condemned as a traitor. At this the crowd roared approval. Checking the postmaster, who was for turning his horse's head to the yard, the drunken patriot sat composedly in his saddle, looking on, with the line round his wrist. Darnay said, as soon as he could make his voice heard, "'Friends, you deceive yourselves, or you are deceived. I am not a traitor.' 
"'He lies!' cried the smith. "'He is a traitor since the decree. "'His life is forfeit to the people. "'His cursed life is not his own.' At the instant when Darnay saw a rush in the eyes of the crowd, which another instant would have brought upon him, the postmaster turned his horse into the yard, the escort rode in close upon his horse's flanks, and the postmaster shut and barred the crazy double gates. The farrier struck a blow upon them with his hammer, and the crowd groaned, but no more was done. "'What is this decree that the smith spoke of?' Darnay asked the postmaster, when he had thanked him, and stood beside him in the yard. "'Truly, a decree for selling the property of emigrants. "'When passed?' "'On the fourteenth, the day I left England. "'Everybody says it is but one of several, and that there will be others, "'if there are not already banishing all emigrants and condemning all to death who return. "'That is what he meant when he said your life was not your own. "'But there are no such decrees yet.' "'What do I know?' said the postmaster, shrugging his shoulders. "'There may be, or there will be. It's all the same. What would you have?' They rested on some straw in a loft until the middle of the night, and then rode forward again when all the town was asleep. Among the many wild changes observable on familiar things which made this wild ride unreal, not the least was the seeming rarity of sleep. After long and lonely spurring over dreary roads, they would come to a cluster of poor cottages, not steeped in darkness, but all glittering with lights, and would find the people, in a ghostly manner in the dead of the night, circling hand in hand round a shriveled tree of liberty, or all drawn up together singing a liberty song. Happily, however, there was sleep in Beauvais that night to help them out of it, and they passed on once more into solitude and loneliness, jingling through the untimely cold and wet among impoverished fields that had yielded no fruits of the earth that year, diversified by the blackened remains of burnt houses, and by the sudden emergence from ambuscade and sharp reining up across their way of patriot patrols on the watch, on all the roads. Daylight at last found them before the wall of Paris. The barrier was closed and strongly guarded when they rode up to it. "'Where are the papers of this prisoner?' demanded a resolute-looking man in authority, who was summoned out by the guard. Naturally struck by the disagreeable word, Charles Darnay requested the speaker to take notice that he was a free traveller and French citizen, in charge of an escort which the disturbed state of the country had imposed upon him, and which he had paid for. "'Where,' repeated the same personage, without taking any heed of him whatever, "'are the papers of this prisoner?' The drunken patriot had them in his cap, and produced them. Casting his eyes over Gabelle's letter, the same personage in authority showed some disorder and surprise, and looked at Darnay with a close attention. He left escort and escorted, without saying a word, however, and went into the guard-room. Meanwhile they sat upon their horses outside the gate. 
Looking about him while in this state of suspense, Charles Darnay observed that the gate was held by a mixed guard of soldiers and patriots, the latter far outnumbering the former, and that while ingress into the city for peasants' carts bringing in supplies and for similar traffic and traffickers was easy enough, egress, even for the homeless people, was very difficult a numerous medley of men and women not to mention beasts and vehicles of various sorts was waiting to issue forth but the previous identification was so strict that they filtered through the barrier very slowly some of these people knew their turn for examination to be so far off that they lay down on the ground to sleep or smoke while others talked together or loitered about the red cap and tricolour cockade were universal both among men and women when he had sat in his saddle some half-hour taking note of these things darnay found himself confronted by the same man in authority who directed the guard to open the barrier then he delivered to the escort drunk and sober a receipt for the escorted and requested him to dismount he did so, and the two patriots leading his tired horse turned and rode away without entering the city. He accompanied his conductor into a guard-room, smelling of common wine and tobacco, where certain soldiers and patriots, asleep and awake, drunk and sober, and in various neutral states between sleeping and waking, drunkenness and sobriety, were standing and lying about. The light in the guard-house, half derived from the waning oil-lamps of the night, and half from the overcast day, was in some correspondingly uncertain condition. Some registers were lying open on a desk, and an officer of a coarse, dark aspect presided over these. "'Citizen Defarge,' said he to Darnay's conductor, as he took a slip of paper to write on. "'Is this the emigrant Evremond? "'This is the man. "'Your age, Evremond? Thirty-seven. "'Married, Evremond? "'Yes. "'Where married? "'In England. "'Without doubt. "'Where is your wife, Evremond? "'In England. "'Without doubt. "'You are consigned, Evremond, "'to the prison of La Force.' "'Just heaven!' exclaimed Darnay. "'Under what law? And for what offence?' The officer looked up from his slip of paper for a moment. "'We have new laws, Evremond, and new offences since you were here.' He said it with a hard smile, and went on writing. "'I entreat you to observe that I have come here voluntarily, in response to that written appeal of a fellow-countryman which lies before you. I demand no more than the opportunity to do so without delay. Is not that my right?' "'Emigrants have no rights, Evremond,' was the stolid reply. The officer wrote until he had finished, read over to himself what he had written, sanded it, and handed it to Defarge with the words, In secret. Defarge motioned with the paper to the prisoner that he must accompany him. The prisoner obeyed, and the guard of two armed patriots attended them.
"'Is it you?' said Defarge, in a low voice, as they went down the guard-house steps and turned into Paris, who married the daughter of Dr. Manette, once a prisoner in the Bastille that is no more. "'Yes,' replied Darnay, looking at him with surprise. "'My name is Defarge, and I keep a wine-shop in the quarter Saint-Antoine. Possibly you have heard of me?' "'My wife came to your house to reclaim her father?' "'Yes.' The word wife seemed to serve as a gloomy reminder to Defarge to say with sudden impatience, "'In the name of that sharp female newly born and called La Guillotine, why did you come to France?' "'You heard me say why a minute ago. Do you not believe it is the truth?' "'A bad truth for you,' said Defarge, speaking with knitted brows, and looking straight before him. "'Indeed I am lost here. All here is so unprecedented, so changed, so sudden and unfair, that I am absolutely lost. Will you render me a little help?' "'None,' Defarge spoke, always looking straight before him. "'Will you answer me a single question?' Perhaps, according to its nature, you can say what it is. In this prison that I am going to so unjustly, shall I have some free communication with the world outside? You will see. I am not to be buried there, prejudged and without any means of presenting my case? You will see. But what, then? Other people have been similarly buried in worse prisons before now? but never by me, citizen Defarge. Defarge glanced darkly at him for answer, and walked on in a steady and set silence. The deeper he sank into this silence, the fainter hope there was, or so Darnay thought, of his softening in any slight degree. He therefore made haste to say, "'It is of the utmost importance to me, you know, citizen, even better than I, of how much importance, that I should be able to communicate to Mr. Lorry, of Tellson's Bank, an English gentleman who is now in Paris, the simple fact, without comment, that I have been thrown into the prison of La Force. Will you cause that to be done for me?' I will do, Defarge doggedly rejoined, nothing for you. My duty is to my country and the people. I am the sworn servant of both, against you. I will do nothing for you. Charles Darnay felt it hopeless to entreat him further, and his pride was touched besides. As they walked on in silence, he could not but see how used the people were to the spectacle of prisoners passing along the streets. The very children scarcely noticed him. A few passers turned their heads, and a few shook their fingers at him as an aristocrat. Otherwise, that a man in good clothes should be going to prison was no more remarkable than that a labourer in working clothes should be going to work. In one narrow, dark, and dirty street through which they passed, an excited orator, mounted on a stool, was addressing an excited audience on the crimes against the people of the king and the royal family. The few words that he caught from this man's lips first made it known to Charles Darnay that the king was in prison, and that the foreign ambassadors had one and all left Paris. On the road, except at Beauvais, he had heard absolutely nothing. 
The escort and the universal watchfulness had completely isolated him. That he had fallen among far greater dangers than those which had developed themselves when he left England, he of course knew now. That perils had thickened about him fast, and might thicken faster and faster yet, he of course knew now. He could not but admit to himself that he might not have made this journey if he could have foreseen the events of a few days. And yet his misgivings were not so dark as, imagined by the light of this later time, they would appear. Troubled as the future was, it was the unknown future, and in its obscurity there was ignorant hope. The horrible massacre, days and nights long, which, within a few rounds of the clock, was to set a great mark of blood upon the blessed garnering time of harvest, was as far out of his knowledge as if it had been a hundred thousand years away. The sharp female newly born, and called La Guillotine, was hardly known to him, or to the generality of people, by name. The frightful deeds that were to be soon done were probably unimagined at that time in the brains of the doers. How could they have a place in the shadowy conceptions of a gentle mind? Of unjust treatment in detention and hardship, and in cruel separation from his wife and child, he foreshadowed the likelihood or the certainty. But beyond this he dreaded nothing distinctly. With this on his mind, which was enough to carry into a dreary prison courtyard, he arrived at the prison of La Force. A man with a bloated face opened the strong wicket, to whom Defarge presented the emigrant Evremond. "'What the devil! How many more of them!' exclaimed the man with the bloated face. Defarge took his receipt without noticing the exclamation, and withdrew with his two fellow-patriots. "'What the devil, I say again!' exclaimed the jailer, left with his wife. "'How many more?' The jailer's wife, being provided with no answer to the question, merely replied, "'One must have patience, my dear.' Three turnkeys who entered responsive to a bell she rang echoed the sentiment, and one added, For the love of liberty! which sounded in that place like an inappropriate conclusion. The prison of La Force was a gloomy prison, dark and filthy, and with a horrible smell of foul sleep in it. Extraordinary how soon the noisome flavour of imprisoned sleep becomes manifest in all such places that are ill cared for. In secret, too, grumbled the jailer, looking at the written paper, as if I was not already full to bursting. He stuck the paper on a file, in an ill humour, and Charles Darnay awaited his further pleasure for half an hour, sometimes pacing to and fro in the strong arched room, sometimes resting on a stone seat, in either case detained to be imprinted on the memory of the chief and his subordinates. "'Come,' said the chief at length, taking up his keys, "'come with me, emigrant.' 
Through the dismal prison twilight, his new charge accompanied him by corridor and staircase, many doors clanging and locking behind them, until they came into a large, low, vaulted chamber, crowded with prisoners of both sexes. The women were seated at a long table, reading and writing, knitting, sewing, and embroidering. The men were for the most part standing behind their chairs, or lingering up and down the room. In the instinctive association of prisoners with shameful crime and disgrace, the newcomer recoiled from this company, but the crowning unreality of his long unreal ride was, there all at once rising, to receive him, with every refinement of manner known to the time, and with all the engaging graces and courtesies of life. So strangely clouded were these refinements by the prison manners and gloom, so spectral did they become in the inappropriate squalor and misery through which they were seen, that Charles Darnay seemed to stand in a company of the dead, ghosts all, the ghost of beauty, the ghost of stateliness, the ghost of elegance, the ghost of pride, the ghost of frivolity, the ghost of wit, the ghost of youth, the ghost of age, all waiting their dismissal from the desolate shore, all turning on him eyes that were changed by the death they had died in coming there. It struck him motionless. The jailer standing at his side, and the other jailers moving about, who would have been well enough as to appearance in the ordinary exercise of their functions, looked so extravagantly coarse, contrasted with sorrowing mothers and blooming daughters who were there, with the apparitions of the coquette, the young beauty, and the mature woman delicately bred that the inversion of all experience and likelihood which the scene of shadows presented was heightened to its utmost surely ghosts all surely the long unreal ride some progress of disease that had brought him to these gloomy shades in the name of the assembled companions in misfortune said a gentleman of courtly appearance and address coming forward, I have the honour of giving you welcome to La Force, and of condoling with you on the calamity that has brought you among us. May it soon terminate happily. It would be an impertinence elsewhere, but it is not so here, to ask your name and condition. Charles Darnay roused himself, and gave the required information, in words as suitable as he could find. "'But I hope,' said the gentleman, following the chief jailer with his eyes, who moved across the room, "'that you are not in secret?' "'I do not understand the meaning of the term, but I have heard them say so. "'Ah, what a pity! We so much regret it. But take courage. Several members of our society have been in secret, at first, and it has lasted but a short time.' Then he added, raising his voice, I grieve to inform the society in secret. There was a murmur of commiseration as Charles Darnay crossed the room to a grated door where the jailer awaited him, and many voices, among which the soft and compassionate voices of women were conspicuous, gave him good wishes and encouragement. 
He turned at the grated door to render the thanks of his heart. It closed under the jailer's hand, and the apparitions vanished from his sight forever. The wicket opened on a stone staircase leading upward. When they had ascended forty steps, the prisoner of half an hour already counted them, the jailer opened a low black door, and they passed into a solitary cell. It struck cold and damp, but was not dark. "'Yours,' said the jailer. "'Why am I confined alone? How do I know?' I can buy pen, ink, and paper. Such are not my orders. You will be visited, and can ask then. At present you may buy your food, and nothing more. There were in the cell a chair, a table, and a straw mattress. As the jailer made a general inspection of these objects, and of the four walls before going out, a wandering fancy wandered through the mind of the prisoner, leaning against the wall opposite to him, that this jailer was so unwholesomely bloated, both in face and person, as to look like a man who had been drowned and filled with water. When the jailer was gone, he thought in the same wandering way, Now am I left as if I were dead? Stopping then to look down at the mattress, he turned from it with a sick feeling, and thought, And here in these crawling creatures is the first condition of the body after death. Five paces by four and a half, five paces by four and a half, five paces by four and a half. The prisoner walked to and fro in his cell, counting its measurement, and the roar of the city arose like muffled drums, with a wild swell of voices added to them. He made shoes, he made shoes, he made shoes. The prisoner counted the measurement again, and paced faster to draw his mind with him from that latter repetition. The ghosts that vanished when the wicket closed, there was one among them, the appearance of a lady dressed in black, who was leaning in the embrasure of a window, and she had a light shining upon her golden hair, and she looked like— let us ride on again, for God's sake, through the illuminated villages with the people all awake. He made shoes, he made shoes, he made shoes, five paces by four and a half. With such scraps tossing and rolling upward from the depths of his mind, the prisoner walked faster and faster, obstinately counting and counting, and the roar of the city changed to this extent, that it still rolled in like muffled drums, but with the wail of voices that he knew in the swell that rose above them. End of Book 3, Chapter 1 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book 3, Chapter 2 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams 
Telson's bank, established in the Saint-Germain quarter of Paris, was in a wing of a large house, approached by a courtyard, and shut off from the street by a high wall and a strong gate. The house belonged to a great nobleman, who had lived in it until he made a flight from the troubles in his own cook's dress, and got across the borders. A mere beast of the chase, flying from hunters. He was still in his metempsychosis no other than the same Monseigneur, the preparation of whose chocolate for whose lips had once occupied three strong men besides the cook in question. Monseigneur gone, and the three strong men absolving themselves from the sin of having drawn his high wages by being more than ready and willing to cut his throat on the altar of the dawning republic, one and indivisible of liberty, equality, fraternity, or death, Monseigneur's house had been first sequestrated and then confiscated for all things moved so fast and decree followed decree with that fierce precipitation that now upon the third night of the autumn month of september patriot emissaries of the law were in possession of monseigneur's house and had marked it with the tricolour and were drinking brandy in its state apartments a place of business in london like telson's place of business in paris would soon have driven the house out of its mind and into the gazette for what would staid british responsibility and respectability have said to orange trees in boxes in a bank courtyard and even to a cupid over the counter yet such things were Telson's had whitewashed the Cupid, but he was still to be seen on the ceiling, in the coolest linen, aiming, as he very often does, at money from morning to night. Bankruptcy must inevitably have come of this young pagan in Lombard Street, London, and also of a curtained alcove in the rear of the immortal boy, and also of a looking-glass let into the wall, and also of clerks, not at all old, who danced in public on the slightest provocation. Yet a French Telson's could get on with these things exceedingly well, and, as long as the times held together, no man had taken fright at them, and drawn out his money. What money would be drawn out of Telson's henceforth, and what would lie there lost and forgotten, what plate and jewels would tarnish in Telson's hiding-places, while the depositors rusted in prisons, and when they should have violently perished? How many accounts with Telson's, never to be balanced in this world, must be carried over into the next? No man could have said, that night, any more than Mr. Jarvis Lorry could though he thought heavily of these questions. He sat by a newly lighted wood fire. The blighted and unfruitful year was prematurely cold, and on his honest and courageous face there was a deeper shade than the pendant lamp could throw, or any object in the room distortedly reflect. A shade of horror! He occupied rooms in the bank, in his fidelity to the house of which he had grown to be a part, like strong root-ivy. 
it chanced that they derived a kind of security from the patriotic occupation of the main building but the true-hearted old gentleman never calculated about that all such circumstances were indifferent to him so that he did his duty on the opposite side of the courtyard under a colonnade was extensive standing for carriages where indeed some carriages of monseigneur yet stood against two of the pillars were fastened two great flaring flambeaux and in the light of these standing out in the open air was a large grindstone a roughly mounted thing which appeared to have hurriedly been brought there from some neighbouring smithy or other workshop rising and looking out of window at these harmless objects mr lorry shivered and retired to his seat by the fire he had opened not only the glass window but the lattice blind outside it and he closed both again and he shivered through his frame from the streets beyond the high wall and the strong gate there came the usual night hum of the city with now and then an indescribable ring in it weird and unearthly as if some unwanted sounds of a terrible nature were going up to heaven thank god said mr lorry clasping his hands that no one near and dear to me is in this dreadful town to-night may he have mercy on all who are in danger soon afterwards the bell at the great gate sounded and he thought they have come back and sat listening but there was no loud eruption into the courtyard as he had expected and he heard the gate clash again and all was quiet the nervousness and dread that were upon him inspired that vague uneasiness respecting the bank which a great change would naturally awaken with such feelings roused it was well guarded and he got up to go among the trusty people who were watching it when his door suddenly opened and two figures rushed in at sight of which he fell back in amazement lucy and her father lucy lucy with her arms stretched out to him and with that old look of earnestness so concentrated and intensified that it seemed as though it had been stamped upon her face expressly to give force and power to it in this one passage of her life what is this cried mr lorry breathless and confused what is the matter lucy manette what has happened what has brought you here what is this with the look fixed upon him in her paleness and wildness she panted out in his arms imploringly oh my dear friend my husband your husband lucy charles what of charles here here in paris has been here some days three or four i don't know how many i can't collect my thoughts an errand of generosity brought him here unknown to us he was stopped at the barrier and sent to prison the old man uttered an irrepressible cry almost at the same moment the beg of the great gate rang again and a loud noise of feet and voices came pouring into the courtyard what is that noise said the doctor turning towards the window don't look cried mr lorry don't look out manette for your life don't touch the blind 
The doctor turned, with his hand upon the fastening of the window, and said, with a cool, bold smile, "'My dear friend, I have a charmed life in this city. I have been a Bastille prisoner. There is no patriot in Paris, in Paris, in France, who, knowing me to have been a prisoner in the Bastille, would touch me, except to overwhelm me with embraces, or carry me in triumph. My old pain has given me a power that has brought us through the barrier, and gained us news of Charles there, and brought us here. I knew it would be so. I knew I could help Charles out of all danger. I told Lucy so. What is that noise? His hand was again upon the window. Don't look! cried Mr. Lorry, absolutely desperate. No, Lucy, my dear, not you. He got his arm round her and held her. Don't be so terrified, my love. I solemnly swear to you that I know of no harm having happened to Charles, that I had no suspicion even of his being in this fatal place. What prison is he in? La Force! La Force! Lucy, my child, if ever you were brave and serviceable in your life, and you were always both, you will compose yourself now to do exactly as I bid you, for more depends upon it than you can think, or I can say. There is no help for you in any action on your part to-night. You cannot possibly stir out. I say this because what I must bid you to do for Charles' sake is the hardest thing to do of all. You must instantly be obedient, still, and quiet. You must let me put you in a room at the back here. You must leave your father and me alone for two minutes, and as there are life and death in the world, you must not delay. I will be submissive to you. I see in your face that you know I can do nothing else than this. I know you are true. The old man kissed her and hurried her into his room and turned the key then came hurrying back to the doctor and opened the window and partly opened the blind and put his hand upon the doctor's arm and looked out with him into the courtyard looked out upon a throng of men and women not enough in number or near enough to fill the courtyard not more than forty or fifty in all the people in possession of the house had let them in at the gate, and they had rushed in to work at the grindstone. It had evidently been set up there for their purpose, as in a convenient and retired spot. But such awful workers, and such awful work! The grindstone had a double handle, and, turning at it madly, were two men, whose faces, as their long hair flapped back when the whirlings of the grindstone brought their faces up, were more horrible and cruel than the visages of the wildest savages in their most barbarous disguise false eyebrows and false moustaches were stuck upon them and their hideous countenances were all bloody and sweaty and all awry with howling and all staring and glaring with beastly excitement and want of sleep as these ruffians turned and turned their matted locks now flung forward over their eyes now flung backward over their necks some women held wine to their mouths that they might drink and what with dropping blood and what with dropping wine and what with the stream of sparks struck out of the stone all their wicked atmosphere seemed 
gore and fire. The eye could not detect one creature in the group free from the smear of blood. Shouldering one another to get next at the sharpening stone were men stripped to the waist with the stain all over their limbs and bodies, men in all sorts of rags with the stain upon those rags, men devilishly set off with spoils of women's lace and silk and ribbon with the stain dyeing those trifles through and through, hatchets, knives, bayonets, swords, all brought to be sharpened were all red with it some of the hacked swords were tied to the wrists of those who carried them with strips of linen and fragments of dress ligatures various in kind but all deep of the one colour and as the frantic wielders of these weapons snatched them from the stream of sparks and tore away into the streets, the same red hue was red in their frenzied eyes, eyes which any unbrutalized beholder would have given twenty years of life to petrify with a well-directed gun. All this was seen in a moment, as the vision of a drowning man, or of any human creature to any very great pass, could see a world if it were there. They drew back from the window, and the doctor looked for explanation in his friend's ashy face. "'They are,' Mr. Lorry whispered the words, glancing fearfully round at the locked room, "'murdering the prisoners.' if you are sure of what you say if you really have the power you think you have as i believe you have make yourself known to these devils and get taken to la force it may be too late i don't know but let it not be a minute later dr manette pressed his hand hastened bareheaded out of the room and was in the courtyard when mr lorry regained the blind his streaming white hair his remarkable face and the impetuous confidence of his manner as he put the weapons aside like water carried him in an instant to the heart of the concourse at the stone for a few moments there was a pause and a hurry and a murmur and the unintelligible sound of his voice and then mr lorry saw him surrounded by all and in the midst of a line of twenty men long all linked shoulder to shoulder and hand to shoulder hurried out with cries of live the bastille prisoner help for the bastille prisoner's kindred in la force room for the bastille prisoner in front there save the prisoner every at la force and a thousand answering shouts he closed the lattice again with a fluttering heart closed the window and the curtain hastened to lucy and told her that her father was assisted by the people and gone in search of her husband he found her child and miss pross with her but it never occurred to him to be surprised by their appearance until a long time afterwards when he sat watching them in such quiet as the night knew 
Lucy had, by that time, fallen into a stupor on the floor at his feet, clinging to his hand. Miss Pross had laid the child down on his own bed, and her head had gradually fallen on the pillow beside her pretty charge. Oh, the long, long night, with the moans of the poor wife, and oh, the long, long night, with no return of her father, and no tidings! Twice more in the darkness the bell at the great gate sounded, and the eruption was repeated, and the grindstone whirled and spluttered. "'What is it?' cried Lucy, affrighted. "'Hush! The soldiers' swords are sharpened there,' said Mr. Lorry. "'The place is national property now, and used as a kind of armoury, my love.' Twice more in all— but the last spell of work was feeble and fitful. Soon afterwards the day began to dawn, and he softly detached himself from the clasping hand, and cautiously looked out again. A man, so besmeared that he might have been a sorely wounded soldier, creeping back to consciousness on a field of slain, was rising from the pavement by the side of the grindstone, and looking about him with a vacant air. Shortly this worn-out murderer descried in the imperfect light one of the carriages of Monseigneur, and, staggering to that gorgeous vehicle, climbed in at the door, and shut himself up to take his rest on its dainty cushions. The great grindstone, earth, had turned when Mr. Lorry looked out again, and the sun was red on the courtyard. But the lesser grindstone stood alone there, in the calm morning air, with a red upon it that the sun had never given, and would never take away. End of Book 3, Chapter 2 Recording by Paul Adams www.yawnguy.com Book Three, Chapter Three of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Three: The Shadow. One of the first considerations which arose in the business mind of Mr. Lorry when business hours came round was this: that he had no right to imperil Tellson's by sheltering the wife of an emigrant prisoner under the bank roof. His own possessions, safety, life, he would have hazarded for Lucy and her child without a moment's demur, but the great trust he held was not his own, and as to that business charge he was a strict man of business. At first his mind reverted to Defarge, and he thought of finding out the wine-shop again, and taking counsel with its master in reference to the safest dwelling-place in the distracted state of the city. But the same consideration that suggested him repudiated him. He lived in the most violent quarter, and doubtless was influential there, and deep in its dangerous workings. Noon coming, and the doctor not returning, and every minute's delay tending to compromise Tellson's, Mr. Lorry advised with Lucy, 
she said that her father had spoken of hiring a lodging for a short term in that quarter near the banking-house as there was no business objection to this and as he foresaw that even if it were all well with charles and he were to be released he could not hope to leave the city mr lorry went out in quest of such a lodging and found a suitable one high up in a removed by-street where the closed blinds in all the other windows of a high melancholy square of buildings marked deserted homes to this lodging he at once removed lucy and her child and miss pross giving them what comfort he could and much more than he had himself he left jerry with them as a figure to fill a doorway that would bear considerable knocking on the head and retained to his own occupations a disturbed and doleful mind he brought to bear upon them and slowly and heavily the day lagged on with him it wore itself out and wore him out with it until the bank closed he was again alone in his room of the previous night considering what to do next when he heard a foot upon the stair in a few moments a man stood in his presence who with a keenly observant look at him addressed him by his name your servant said mr lorry do you know me he was a strongly made man with dark curling hair from forty-five to fifty years of age for answer he repeated without any change of emphasis the words do you know me i have seen you somewhere perhaps at my wine-shop much interested and agitated mr lorry said you come from dr manette yes i come from dr manette and what says he what does he send me defarge gave into his anxious hand an open scrap of paper it bore the words in the doctor's writing charles is safe but i cannot safely leave this place yet i have obtained the favour that the bearer has a short note from charles to his wife let the bearer see his wife it was dated from la force within an hour will you accompany me said mr lorry joyfully relieved after reading this note aloud to where his wife resides yes returned defarge scarcely noticing as yet in what a curiously reserved and mechanical way defarge spoke mr lorry put on his hat and they went down into the courtyard there they found two women one knitting madame defarge surely said miss lorry who had left her in exactly the same attitude some seventeen years ago it is she observed her husband does madame go with us inquired mr lorry seeing that she moved as they moved yes that she may be able to recognize the faces and know the persons it is for their safety Beginning to be struck by Defarge's manner, Mr. Lorry looked dubiously at him, and led the way. Both the women followed, the second woman being the vengeance. They passed through the intervening streets as quickly as they might, ascended the staircase of the new domicile, were admitted by Jerry, and found Lucy weeping, alone. She was thrown into a transport by the tidings Mr. Lorry gave her of her husband, and clasped the hand that delivered his note, little thinking what it had been doing near him in the night, and might but for a chance have done to him. Dearest, 
Take courage, I am well, and your father has influence around me. You cannot answer this. Kiss our child for me. That was all the writing. It was so much, however, to her who received it, that she turned from Defarge to his wife and kissed one of the hands that knitted. It was a passionate, loving, thankful, womanly action. But the hand made no response, dropped cold and heavy, and took to its knitting again. There was something in its touch that gave Lucy a check. She stopped in the act of putting the note in her bosom, and, with her hands yet at her neck, looked terrified at Madame Defarge. Madame Defarge met the lifted eyebrows and forehead with a cold, impassive stare. "'My dear,' said Mr. Lorry, striking in to explain, "'there are frequent risings in the streets, "'and although it is not likely they will ever trouble you, "'Madame Defarge wishes to see those whom she has the power to protect "'at such times, to the end that she may know them, "'that she may identify them, I believe,' said Mr. Lorry, "'rather halting in his reassuring words, "'as the stony manner of all the three impressed itself upon him more and more. "'I state the case, citizen Defarge.' "'Defarge looked gloomily at his wife and gave no other answer "'than a gruff sound of acquiescence.' "'You had better, Lucy,' said Mr. Lorry, doing all he could to propitiate by tone and manner, "'have the dear child here, and our good Pross. Our good Pross, Defarge, is an English lady, and knows no French.' The lady in question, whose rooted conviction that she was more than a match for any foreigner, was not to be shaken by distress and danger, appeared with folded arms, and observed in English to the vengeance whom her eyes first encountered, "'Well, I am sure, bold-face, I hope you are pretty well.' She also bestowed a British cough on Madame Defarge, but neither of the two took much heed of her. "'Is this his child?' said Madame Defarge, stopping in her work for the first time, and pointing her knitting-needle at little Lucy, as if it were the finger of fate. "'Yes, madame,' answered Mr. Lorry. "'This is our poor prisoner's darling daughter, and only child.' The shadow attendant on Madame Defarge and her party seemed to fall so threatening and dark on the child that her mother instinctively kneeled on the ground beside her and held her to her breast. The shadow attendant on Madame Defarge and her party seemed then to fall, threatening and dark, on both the mother and the child. "'It is enough, my husband,' said Madame Defarge. "'I have seen them. We may go.' But the suppressed manner had enough of menace in it, not visible and presented, but indistinct and withheld, to alarm Lucy into saying, as she laid her appealing hand on Madame Defarge's dress, "'You will be good to my poor husband. You will do him no harm. You will help me to see him if you can?' "'Your husband is not my business here,' returned Madame Defarge, looking down at her with perfect composure. "'It is the daughter of your father who is my business here.' "'For my sake, then, be merciful to my husband, for my child's sake. She will put her hands together and pray you to be merciful. We are more afraid of you than of these others.' Madame Defarge received it as a compliment, and looked at her husband. 
Defarge, who had been uneasily biting his thumbnail and looking at her, collected his face into a sterner expression. "'What is it that your husband says in that little letter?' asked Madame Defarge, with a lowering smile. "'Influence,' he says, "'something touching influence?' "'That my father,' said Lucy, hurriedly taking the paper from her breast, but with her alarmed eyes on her questioner, and not on it, "'has much influence around him.' "'Surely it will release him,' said Madame Defarge. "'Let it do so.' "'As a wife and mother,' cried Lucy, most earnestly, "'I implore you to have pity on me, "'and not to exercise any power that you possess "'against my innocent husband, "'but to use it in his behalf. "'O oh, sister-woman, think of me as a wife and mother!' Madame Defarge looked coldly as ever at the suppliant, and said, turning to her friend, "'The Vengeance,' The wives and mothers we have been used to see since we were as little as this child, and much less, have not been greatly considered. We have known their husbands and fathers laid in prison and kept from them often enough. All our lives we have seen our sister-women suffer, in themselves and in their children, poverty, nakedness, hunger, thirst, sickness, misery, oppression, and neglect of all kinds. We have seen nothing else, returned the vengeance. We have borne this a long time, said Madame Defarge, turning her eyes again upon Lucy. Judge you, is it likely that the trouble of one wife and mother would be much to us now? She resumed her knitting and went out. The vengeance followed. Defarge went last and closed the door. "'Courage, my dear Lucy,' said Mr. Lorry, as he raised her. "'Courage, courage! So far all goes well with us. Much, much better than it has of late gone with many poor souls. Cheer up, and have a thankful heart.' "'I am not thankless, I hope, but that dreadful woman seems to throw a shadow on me, and on all my hopes.' "'Tut, tut!' said Mr. Lorry. "'What is this despondency in the brave little breast? "'A shadow, indeed! No substance in it, Lucy!' But the shadow of the manner of these defarges was dark upon himself, for all that, and in his secret mind it troubled him greatly. End of Book 3, Chapter 3 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book Three, Chapter Four of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Four Calm in Storm. Dr. Manette did not return until the morning of the fourth day of his absence. So much of what had happened in that dreadful time as could be kept from the knowledge of Lucy was so well concealed from her that not until long afterwards, when France and she were far apart, did she know that eleven hundred defenceless prisoners of both sexes and all ages had been killed by the populace, that four days and nights had been darkened by this deed of horror, and that the air around her had been tainted by the slain. 
She only knew that there had been an attack upon the prisons, that all political prisoners had been in danger, and that some had been dragged out by the crowd and murdered. To Mr. Lorry, the doctor communicated under an injunction of secrecy, on which he had no need to dwell, that the crowd had taken him through a scene of carnage to the prison of La Force, that, in the prison, he had found a self-appointed tribunal sitting, before which the prisoners were brought singly, and by which they were rapidly ordered to be put forth to be massacred, or to be released, or, in a few cases, to be sent back to their cells that presented by his conductors to this tribunal he had announced himself by name and profession as having been for eighteen years a secret and unaccused prisoner in the bastille that one of the bodies so sitting in judgment had risen and identified him and that this man was defarge that hereupon he had ascertained through the registers on the table that his son-in-law was among the living prisoners and had pleaded hard to the tribunal of whom some members were asleep and some awake some dirty with murder and some clean some sober and some not for his life and liberty that in the first frantic greetings lavished on him as a notable sufferer under the overthrown system it had been accorded to him to have charles darnay brought before the lawless court and examined that he seemed on the point of being at once released when the tide in his favour met with some unexplained check not intelligible to the doctor which led to a few words of secret conference that the man sitting as president had then informed dr manette that the prisoner must remain in custody but should for his sake be held inviolate in safe custody that immediately on a signal the prisoner was removed to the interior of the prison again but that he the doctor had then so strongly pleaded for permission to remain and assure himself that his son-in-law was through no malice or mischance delivered to the concourse whose murderous yells outside the gate had often drowned the proceedings that he had obtained the permission and had remained in that hall of blood until the danger was over the sights he had seen there with brief snatches of food and sleep by intervals should remain untold the mad joy over the prisoners who were saved had astounded him scarcely less than the mad ferocity against those who were cut to pieces one prisoner there was he said who had been discharged into the street free but at whom a mistaken savage had thrust a pike as he passed out being besought to go to him and dress the wound the doctor had passed out at the same gate and had found him in the arms of a company of samaritans who were seated on the bodies of their victims with an inconsistency as monstrous as anything in this awful nightmare they had helped the healer and tended the wounded man with the gentlest solicitude had made a litter for him and escorted him carefully from the spot had then caught up their weapons and plunged anew into a butchery so dreadful that the doctor had covered his eyes with his hands and swooned away in the midst of it as mr lorry received these confidences and as he watched the face of his friend now sixty-two years of age a misgiving arose within him that such dread experiences would revive the old danger 
but he had never seen his friend in his present aspect he had never at all known him in his present character for the first time the doctor felt now that his suffering was strength and power for the first time he felt that in that sharp fire he had slowly forged the iron which could break the prison door of his daughter's husband and deliver him it all tended to a good end my friend it was not mere waste and ruin as my beloved child was helpful in restoring me to myself i will be helpful now in restoring the dearest part of herself to her by the aid of heaven i will do it thus dr manette and when jarvis lorry saw the kindled eyes the resolute face the calm strong look and bearing of the man whose life always seemed to him to have been stopped like a clock for so many years and then set going again with an energy which had lain dormant during the cessation of its usefulness he believed greater things than the doctor had at that time to contend with would have yielded before his persevering purpose while he kept himself in his place as a physician whose business was with all degrees of mankind bond and free rich and poor bad and good he used his personal influence so wisely that he was soon the inspecting physician of three prisons and among them of la force he could now assure lucy that her husband was no longer confined alone but was mixed with the general body of prisoners he saw her husband weekly and brought sweet messages to her straight from his lips sometimes her husband himself sent a letter to her though never by the doctor's hand but she was not permitted to write to him for among the many wild suspicions of plots in the prisons the wildest of all pointed at emigrants who were known to have made friends or permanent connections abroad this new life of the doctor's was an anxious life no doubt still the sagacious mr lorry saw that there was a new sustaining pride in it nothing unbecoming tinged the pride it was a natural and worthy one but he observed it as a curiosity the doctor knew that up to that time his imprisonment had been associated in the minds of his daughter and his friend with his personal affliction deprivation and weakness now that this was changed and he knew himself to be invested through that old trial with forces to which they both looked for charles ultimate safety and deliverance he became so far exalted by the change that he took the lead and direction and required them as the weak to trust to him as the strong the preceding relative positions of himself and lucy were reversed yet only as the liveliest gratitude and affection could reverse them for he could have had no pride but in rendering some service to her who had rendered so much to him all curious to see thought mr lorry in his amiable shrewd way but all natural and right so take the lead my dear friend and keep it it couldn't be in better hands but though the doctor tried hard and never ceased trying to get charles darnay set at liberty or at least to get him brought to trial the public current of the time set too strong and fast for him the new era began the king was tried doomed and beheaded 
the republic of liberty equality fraternity or death declared for victory or death against the world in arms the black flag waved night and day from the great towers of notre dame three hundred thousand men summoned to rise against the tyrants of the earth rose from all the varying soils of france as if the dragon's teeth had been sown broadcast and had yielded fruit equally on hill and plain on rock in gravel and alluvial mud under the bright sky of the south and under the clouds of the north in fell and forest in the vineyards and the olive grounds and among the cropped grass and the stubble of the corn along the fruitful banks of the broad rivers and in the sand of the seashore what private solicitude could rear itself against the deluge of the year one of liberty the deluge rising from below not falling from above and with the windows of heaven shut not opened there was no pause no pity no peace no interval of relenting rest no measurement of time through days and nights circled as regularly as when time was young and the evening and morning were the first day other count of time there was none hold of it was lost in the raging fever of a nation as it is in the fever of one patient now breaking the unnatural silence of a whole city the executioner showed the people the head of the king and now it seemed almost in the same breath the head of his fair wife which had had eight weary months of imprisoned widowhood and misery to turn it grey and yet observing the strange law of contradiction which obtains in all such cases the time was long while it flamed by so fast a revolutionary tribunal in the capital and forty or fifty thousand revolutionary committees all over the land a law of the suspected which struck away all security for liberty or life and delivered over any good and innocent person to any bad and guilty one prisoners gorged with people who had committed no offence and could obtain no hearing these things became the established order and nature of appointed things and seemed to be ancient usage before they were many weeks old above all one hideous figure grew as familiar as if it had been before the general gaze from the foundations of the world the figure of the sharp female called la guillotine it was the popular theme for jests it was the best cure for headache it infallibly prevented the hair from turning grey it imparted a peculiar delicacy to the complexion it was the national razor which shaved close who kissed la guillotine looked through the little window and sneezed into the sack it was the sign of the regeneration of the human race it superseded the cross models of it were worn on breasts from which the cross was discarded and it was bowed down to and believed in where the cross was denied it sheared off heads so many that it and the ground it most polluted were a rotten red it was taken to pieces like a toy puzzle for a young devil and was put together again when the occasion wanted it it hushed the eloquent
struck down the powerful, abolished the beautiful and good. Twenty-two friends of high public mark, twenty-one living and one dead, it had lopped the heads off in one morning in as many minutes. The name of the strong man of old scripture had descended to the chief functionary who worked it, but, so armed, he was stronger than his namesake, and blinder, and tore away the gates of God's own temple every day. Among these terrors, and the brood belonging to them, the doctor walked with a steady head, confident in his power, cautiously persistent in his end, never doubting that he would save Lucy's husband at last. Yet the current of the time swept by, so strong and deep, and carried the time away so fiercely, that Charles had lain in prison one year and three months, when the doctor was thus steady and confident. So much more wicked and distracted had the revolution grown in that December month, that the rivers of the south were encumbered with the bodies of the violently drowned by night, and prisoners were shot in lines and squares, under the southern wintry sun. Still the doctor walked among the terrors with a steady head. No man better known than he in Paris at that day, no man in a stranger situation, silent, humane, indispensable in hospital and prison, using his art equally among assassins and victims. He was a man apart. In the exercise of his skill, the appearance and the story of the Bastille captive removed him from all other men. He was not suspected or brought in question, any more than if he had indeed been recalled to life, some eighteen years before, or a spirit moving among mortals. End of Book Three, Chapter Four. Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com. Book Three, Chapter Five of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Five: The Wood Saw. One year and three months. During all that time, Lucy was never sure, from hour to hour, but that the guillotine would strike off her husband's head next day. Every day, through the stony streets, the tumbrils now jolted heavily, filled with condemned lovely girls bright women, brown-haired, black-haired, and grey, youths, stalwart men and old, gentle-born and peasant-born, all red wine for la guillotine, all daily brought into light from the dark cellars of the loathsome prisons, and carried to her through the streets to slake her devouring thirst. Liberty, equality, fraternity, or death! the last much the easiest to bestow o guillotine if the suddenness of her calamity and the whirling wheels of the time had stunned the doctor's daughter into awaiting the result in idle despair it would but have been with her as it was with many but from the hour when she had taken the white head to her fresh young bosom in the garret of saint antoine she had been true to her duties she was truest to them in the season of trial as all the quietly loyal and good will always be 
As soon as they were established in their new residence, and her father had entered on the routine of his avocations, she arranged the little household as exactly as if her husband had been there. Everything had its appointed place and its appointed time. Little Lucy she taught as regularly as if they had all been united in their English home. The slight devices with which she cheated herself into the show of a belief that they would soon be reunited, the little preparations for his speedy return, the setting aside of his chair and his books, these, and the solemn prayer at night for one dear prisoner especially, among the many unhappy souls in prison and the shadow of death, were almost the only outspoken reliefs of her heavy mind. She did not greatly alter in appearance the plain dark dresses, akin to mourning dresses, which she and her child wore, were as neat and as well attended to as the brighter clothes of happy days. She lost her colour, and the old and intent expression was a constant, not an occasional thing. Otherwise she remained very pretty and comely. Sometimes, at night, on kissing her father, she would burst into the grief she had repressed all day, and would say that her sole reliance under heaven was on him. He always resolutely answered, "'Nothing can happen to him without my knowledge, and I know that I can save him, Lucy.' They had not made the round of their changed life many weeks, when her father said to her, on coming home one evening, my dear there is an upper window in the prison to which charles can sometimes gain access at three in the afternoon when he can get to it which depends on many uncertainties and incidents he might see you in the street he thinks if you stood in a certain place that i can show you but you will not be able to see him my poor child and even if you could it would be unsafe for you to make a sign of recognition oh show me the place my father and i will go there every day from that time in all weathers she waited there two hours as the clock struck two she was there and at four she turned resignedly away when it was not too wet or inclement for her child to be with her they went together at other times she was alone but she never missed a single day it was the dark and dirty corner of a small winding street the hovel of a cutter of wood into lengths for burning was the only house at that end all else was wall on the third day of her being there he noticed her good day citizeness good day citizen this mode of address was now prescribed by decree it had been established voluntarily some time ago among the more thorough patriots but was now law for everybody walking here again citizeness you see me citizen the wood-sawyer who was a little man with a redundancy of gesture he had once been a mender of roads cast a glance at the prison pointed at the prison, and putting his ten fingers before his face to represent bars, peeped through them jocosely. "'But it's not my business,' said he, and went on sawing his wood. Next day he was looking out for her, and accosted her the moment she appeared. "'What, walking here again, citizeness?' "'Yes, citizen.' "'Ah, a child, too. Your mother, is it not, my little citizeness?' "'Do I say yes, mamma? 
whispered little Lucy, drawing close to her. "'Yes, dearest.' "'Yes, citizen.' "'Ah, but it is not my business. My work is my business. See my saw? I call it my little guillotine. La, 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 and off his head comes.' The billet fell as he spoke, and he threw it into a basket. "'I call myself the Samson of the firewood guillotine. See here again, loo-loo-loo, loo-loo-loo, and off her head comes. Now a child, tickle-tickle, pickle-pickle, and off its head comes, all the family.' Lucy shuddered as he threw two more billets into his basket, but it was impossible to be there while the wood-sawyer was at work, and not be in his sight.' thenceforth to secure his good will she always spoke to him first and often gave him drink money which he readily received he was an inquisitive fellow and sometimes when she had quite forgotten him in gazing at the prison roof and grates and in lifting her heart up to her husband she would come to herself to find him looking at her with his knee on his bench and his saw stopped in its work but it's not my business he would generally say at those times and would briskly fall to his sawing again in all weathers in the snow and frost of winter in the bitter winds of spring in the hot sunshine of summer in the rains of autumn and again in the snow and frost of winter lucy passed two hours of every day at this place and every day on leaving it she kissed the prison wall her husband saw her so she learned from her father it might be once in five or six times it might be twice or thrice running it might be not for a week or a fortnight together it was enough that he could and did see her when the chances served and on that possibility he would have waited out the day seven days a week these occupations brought her round to the december month wherein her father walked among the terrors with a steady head on a lightly snowing afternoon she arrived at the usual corner it was a day of some wild rejoicing and a festival she had seen the houses as she came along decorated with little pikes and with little red caps stuck upon them also with tricoloured ribbons also with the standard inscription tricoloured letters were the favourite republic one and indivisible liberty equality fraternity or death the miserable shop of the wood-sawyer was so small that its whole surface furnished very indifferent space for this legend he had got somebody to scrawl it up for him however who had squeezed death in with most inappropriate difficulty on his house-top he displayed pike and cap as a good citizen must and in a window he had stationed his saw inscribed as his little saint guillotine for the great sharp female was by that time popularly canonized his shop was shut and he was not there which was a relief to lucy and left her quite alone but he was not far off 
for presently she heard a troubled movement and a shouting coming along which filled her with fear a moment afterwards and a throng of people came pouring round the corner by the prison wall in the midst of whom was the wood sawyer hand in hand with the vengeance there could not be fewer than five hundred people and they were dancing like five thousand demons there was no other music than their own singing they danced to the popular revolution song keeping a ferocious time that was like a gnashing of teeth in unison men and women danced together women danced together men danced together as hazard had brought them together at first they were a mere storm of coarse red caps and coarse woollen rags but as they filled the place and stopped to dance about lucy some ghastly apparition of a dance figure gone raving mad arose among them they advanced retreated struck at one another's hands clutched at one another's heads spun round alone caught one another and spun round in pairs until many of them dropped while those were down the rest linked hand in hand and all spun round together then the ring broke and in separate rings of two and four they turned and turned until they all stopped at once began again struck clutched and tore and then reversed the spin and all spun round another way suddenly they stopped again paused struck out the time afresh formed into lines the width of the public way and with their heads low down and their hands high up swooped screaming off no fight could have been half so terrible as this dance it was so emphatically a fallen sport a something once innocent delivered over to all devilry a healthy pastime changed into a means of angering the blood bewildering the senses and stealing the heart such grace as was visible in it made it the uglier showing how warped and perverted all things good by nature were become the maidenly bosom bared to this the pretty almost child's head thus distracted the delicate foot mincing in this slough of blood and dirt were types of the disjointed time this was the carmignol as it passed leaving lucy frightened and bewildered in the doorway of the wood sawyer's house the feathery snow fell as quietly and lay as white and soft as if it had never been oh my father for he stood before her when she lifted up the eyes she had momentarily darkened with her hand such a cruel bad sight i know my dear i know i have seen it many times don't be frightened not one of them would harm you i am not frightened for myself my father but when i think of my husband and the mercies of these people we will set him above their mercies very soon i left him climbing to the window and i came to tell you there is no one here to see you may kiss your hand towards that highest shelving roof i do so father and i send him my soul with it you cannot see him my poor dear no father said lucy yearning and weeping as she kissed her hand no a footstep in the snow madame defarge i salute you citizeness from the doctor i salute you citizen 
This in passing, nothing more. Madame Defarge gone like a shadow over the white road. Give me your arm, my love. Pass from here with an air of cheerfulness and courage, for his sake. That was well done. They had left the spot. It shall not be in vain. Charles is summoned for to-morrow. For to-morrow? There is no time to lose. I am well prepared, but there are precautions to be taken that could not be taken until he was actually summoned before the tribunal. He has not received the notice yet, but I know that he will presently be summoned for to-morrow and removed to the conciergerie. I have timely information. You are not afraid? She could scarcely answer. I trust in you. Do so implicitly. Your suspense is nearly ended, my darling. He shall be restored to you within a few hours. I have encompassed him with every protection. I must see Lorry. He stopped. There was a heavy lumbering of wheels within hearing. They both knew too well what it meant. One, two, three, three tumbrils faring away with their dread loads over the hushing snow. I must see Lorry, the doctor repeated, turning her another way. The staunch old gentleman was still in his trust, had never left it. He and his books were in frequent requisition as to property confiscated and made national. What he could save for the owners, he saved. No better man living to hold fast by what Telson's had in keeping and to hold his peace a murky red and yellow sky and a rising mist from the seine denoted the approach of darkness it was almost dark when they arrived at the bank the stately residence of monseigneur was altogether blighted and deserted above a heap of dust and ashes in the court ran the letters national property republic one and indivisible liberty equality fraternity or death who could that be with mr lorry the owner of the riding-coat upon the chair who must not be seen from whom newly arrived did he come out agitated and surprised to take his favourite in his arms to whom did he appear to repeat her faltering words when raising his voice and turning his head towards the door of the room from which he had issued he said removed to the conciergerie and summoned for to-morrow End of Book 3, Chapter 5, Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com